Yeah, what do you, well, I feel like we're done now. We're just, <laughs> uh, it's time for yoga. <laughs> By the way, I've been doing hot yoga, just so you know, Courtney. I turned 60 and decided that I needed to change my, my deal, and it's actually uh, revitalized my whole body. I, I, except I pulled a hammy in vinyasa the other day, and uh, kind of made me mad. And Alex... Okay, um, gear shift. Um, we've been blessed by this story, and there's probably no greater message than the life of a, a person who can actually bring sense out of the craziness of all of that. And so that was per particularly touching for me in a year. I called this last year the year of death for, for uh, my wife and I. We had six dear people uh, pass away uh, and go to be with the Lord, and it was just one of those hard years, so it's good to know in the midst of some tragedies, there's these things, and you don't know why. You don't know why, but yay, you know, yay. Um, okay, I'm going to go into professor mode, um, so get ready. We're in classroom today, uh, and it's actually helpful because I'm not going to try to do anything that's going to be like, I'm going to be spiritual. <laughs> no, that's going to be... Uh, um, anything close to what we just heard. Our, our spirits have been filled. I want to get practical with you as parents and um, as persons about the issue of social media and the internet in our world. I've been studying this because, um, well, one, I, have th I had three daughters, and we didn't even hit the big rage. Like, my daughters didn't get their cell phone until they were 16 years old, you know? And uh, I think uh, our kids would kill us if that was true now. Um, so here's some things I just want us to, to think about. Uh, let's, so I'm going to talk about the connected but alone generation because what's happening with the Internet and particularly with social media is that it's affecting our kids. And I'm going to be talking about your kids because I want you to think about as a parent, what are you going to do about this stuff? And, but actually, I think the little trick here is actually I'm talking about your kids, but I might be talking about you. So uh, what is this? Here, let's go to the next slide. What's that? Okay, next one. That? A compass, yes, and a, and a map. What next? What's that? Uh-huh, next. Yeah, so these right here are uh, timeless tools, inventions, technologies, by the way, that have uh, shaped and changed our world in some incredible ways, right? Okay, uh, what is this? I don't know why I put a, it's a lute. I don't know. I, I, I could have used a guitar, but I found a lute. Yeah, what in the heck? Pre precursor to the guitar. Uh, what is this? Uh huh. What is this? Okay, so here's another thing. Uh, technologies, ancient technologies, by the way, that we hold in our hand that allow us to express ourselves, to connect, to connect with others. All right. Uh, what's this? Here, Nade. What's this? Uh huh. What's this? Pacemaker. Again, we we'll stop here and we'll say this. These are technologies we've created that actually make life better, improve areas that are weak within us. So technology has done some amazing things in our world when we stop and just think about it. Thank God. 
for technology. And now welcome to some of our greatest technologies right here. A technology we hold in our hand. It accompanies our every moment. It's our paintbrush, our pen, our connection, our ability to find out anything, our telescope, our ways to look at the planets. It is, a hundred years ago, if you were to express to somebody this, they would go, no freaking way. I mean, Star Wars or something, you know, that, that just cannot happen. And everything we could do with all these other technologies are held right now in the palm of your hand, which is amazing. It is our map. If we go to this next one here, it's our map, which is this little flat part. It's our pen, and it's our paintbrush, our artistic reality. We can use this. We can play guitar on this. We can create music on this. I mean, it's amazing what this iPhone, this cell phone, this smartphone does in our, in our life. And it's, it's a weird thing, even the shape. I, I know that it's not all about Apple, but just the bite out of that apple. Now, I know they would say, well, I'm not trying to be religious here, but why did they bite the apple? Satan said, God knows if you pick it, you can be just like God. It's interesting, they call it the iPhone. There's just some weird little thoughts around the ideas, things like this. I mean, even they call it a platform. And I think about like Genesis 11, they built this platform to try to reach to the heavens to be like God. You know, they even call it the cloud, and he ascends through the clouds. We, we, we think there's these, this reli- almost religious spiritual connotation to the very thing that we just buy because it's the newest technology. And th- there it is. So uh, on average, people check their iPhones 150 times a day. Um, and that's like once about every 6.5 minutes, and I'm sure it's going up, maybe even more than that. Uh, if you're a high schooler, you uh, will check it more than that for sure. Um, and it was meant to serve us, like all technologies. But then we began to wonder who's serving who here. Um, Kids get turned on to these digital product, products at younger and younger ages, and I just don't know. I mean, we, you kind of wonder if you're... 60 or 50 or whatever, how did we survive? Because, <laughs> you know, because we can't go anywhere now without, you better call me or, you know, how did we survive? Um, <clears throat> so it, it, it is an amazing thing. And the question is, what is it teaching? Uh, go to this next slide, this next generation. Um, you, you, you do wonder what it's teaching us. Um, let me ask this. What have you heard? Because you, you, you've, you've got to have heard something. So talk, talk to me. What have, what have you heard about what this is doing? We can talk now. What? What's this? Yeah, it's changing our brains. What have you heard about this? And in what kind of ways? What's that? Yeah, there's this instant gratification. Our ability to be patient or to deal with, I mean, it, it's really, really hard. You know, it's amazing to think that with a swipe, you can like and dislike and date and duh and hook up and nod and change your major. And you mean, it's amazing what you can do just with a little boom, you know. What else have you heard? It gives you dopamine hits every time you do it. Yep. It's what? Delaying the development of the frontal lobe. What is the frontal lobe involved with? Decision-making capabilities and things like this, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's causing more anxiety. The, the rise of depression. Whew. We don't know what to do with all that, right? So we're going to hit some of this stuff and, and stuff you already know. And here's the deal with this, what I'm about to do here. I don't have, nobody has the answer to this stuff. I'm just asking us, we're probably not going to go into small groups. We're probably going to just be a small group today, you know, for a while here at least. Is that all right? We can just do that. Uh, so um, here's what I uh, am knowing here. Uh, so meet, meet the I-gods. I call them the I-gods. Uh, I, I know that uh, uh, Steve Jobs is, is passed away and that um, Tim Cook is now the president of Apple. But when we think of Apple, we think of Steve Jobs. Um, there's Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook. I'm sorry this is not as clear as it could be. Larry Page with Google and Jeff Bezos. Uh, with, with Amazon. It was always a big question, who's going to rule the world? I think Amazon's uh, probably winning. Um, I mean, literally, with Amazon Prime, I mean, they even, it's like the Holy Spirit. They even give you suggestions. You would like to buy this, you know, and it's like, it's like the Holy Spirit. You, you can't believe what you buy on Amazon now. It, it, I mean, in the last year, we, I get, we get more stuff on our porch. Uh, in mo it just, it's unbelievable, you know, and wh what is it about these guys that makes each of them over, worth over 45 billion? A piece. Now, you got to stop and ask yourself, should anybody have that much money? Anyway. Uh, but here's, here's the deal with these guys, right? I call them the I-gods. Um, they have solved America, in particular's biggest problems. And here's the, their, America's biggest problems. We have too much stuff. 75% uh, of Americans can't get their cars in their garage. Uh, <laughs> ring a bell? So we need, th we need three now. We need three <laughs> garages. <laughs> um, and don't, don't do this, this slide here, but here, here's the challenge. If you were to think like in uh, Orange County, uh, if you were to stop and just don't go to the slide here yet and think about uh, what is the fastest growing industry and a guy who's making more money uh, uh, in, in Glendale, California than anything. Do you know what it is? Storage. Wayne Hughes with public storage is like making $2.6 billion a year. And this simple, like, I wish I would have thought of this. I mean, what in the heck? It's so simple. You have a room with a light bulb, maybe. <laughs> you know, and he's, he's literally got 2,250 locations to date. And we just saw some new ones come up in Spokane. It's crazy, right? And he's the top, one of the top 400 richest people in the world, you know, building <laughs> storage spaces. I'm an idiot. <clears throat> uh, and because you look at this, here, here, but here's the real. Who solved the problem of our music CD jumble? Well, Apple. They, they gave us that iPod, and now we got MP3s right on our phone. It's all right there, right? I mean, when that iPod came out, that was amazing. I could put albums and music, just boom. Um, who solved the problem of, of uh, too many books and stuff? Well, Amazon came up with the Kindle. I mean, you can just like, boom, I got my books right here. <laughs> These library, I can't figure out where my books are in boxes. They're, here. They're right here. Uh, who, who, with too much information. I mean, Google just, do Google Docs, everything, we can just get it all right here. You know, too many friends. Well, Facebook, you know. <laughs> and then if you have way too many friends, like Facebook only allows you to get 5,000. You know, you can go to Twitter, and you can go even beyond that with friends. You know, it, it, it's amazing. And we're going to talk in a little bit about the newest technology that you're Hope you guys aren't on this, but Snapchat is the next thing that your kids are using to communicate. So um, it is uh, quite an amazing thing that what these I-gods have solved in America, which we have to stop and go, wow, this is our problem, too much stuff.
Too much freaking stuff. We, it stresses us out. And these guys solved it. Hmm. So uh, if we want, uh, before we jump into the effects of social media and the digital world, I, I want us to understand what motivates, now listen to this, what motivates and what influences and controls this generation. And it, it controlled us too, but maybe even more so. What controls us is this thing called Madison Avenue, the advertising industry. You think about life without advertising. Because what advertisers do is spend billions of dollars every year to try to figure out how to, how to get, by 12 years old, you, them sold on their product, brand loyalty, so they'll stick with you the rest of the, their life. And so they spend billions to try to get you psychologically to believe in their stuff. And advertising has really, really changed. They know how to get people to do things because we do it. We just go buy the stuff. Um, product loyalty. Advertising has changed. And the way it's changed is this. Uh, this generation, particularly, and we're involved in it, is moved and molded by picture, music, feeling, and image. More than any other time. Like, that's a Levi's jeans commercial. When I bought my first buttonfly Levi jeans when I was like in fourth grade in 1962, uh, you, you know, my mom got them because the advertising literally said, brass buckled seams, strong, double denim. You know, you, you actually talked about the jeans. Like, we're getting those, you know. Now, <laughs> there's nothing about anything but a picture. Levi's. Uh, retone. This is about shoes. <laughs> Nothing about the shoes. This is about Coke, open happiness, and it, it's it's image and it's and you put some music behind this or whatever. This is what is motivating. And I want you to understand the power of this. How much this has changed what's going on in advertising. It's no. You look at commercials, everything. It's no longer about the product. Who cares about the product? It's this other subconscious thing, this image feeling that's capturing us beyond, you know, any practicality of what the product is. Um, in fact, he's a pastor now. He's a Mennonite pastor. His name's Shane Hips. And before he was a pastor, he was the head of advertising for Porsche, making a lot of money. I mean, like classic, you know, autobline sports cars. And here was his job description. My goal is to spend millions of dollars in research to figure out how to inhabit your mind and feed you with opinions about our product that you think were your own. That was his job description as the head of Porsche. That'd be kind of fun. <laughs> like, okay, let's have some fun, boys. Um, what are we going to do here? Well, here's what they did, and he made millions in this. Check out, I'm just going to give you a few Porsche ads out of some magazines. Uh, calling it transportation is like calling sex reproduction. Nothing about the car. So I'm going to talk about image, feeling, emotion. I mean, this is what's selling product. Here's, here's another Porsche ad. Who says you can't be devoted to more than one religion? And even in the description of this, doubters prepare to be converted. This religious imagery that captures something like almost our soul in the midst of advertising, right? Again, nothing about the car. Next, next one. Even you would like a date with her. Six-foot-tall, blonde, owning a Porsche is not only about the driving experience. Uh, but, I mean, it's kind of amazing. Next one. Rare are the times when your wife respects your mistress. The new 
Panamera Turbo available in March. Do you understand? I mean, advertising. If we want to know what moves a generation, and probably moves us, it's the reality of what Madison Avenue is doing with image, picture, feeling, and music to get us to buy their stuff. Here, might hit the lights a little bit on this one. Here's the number one, I think it's 2016, they voted the best commercial in the world. Okay, here it is right here. Let's go. <laughs> Why wouldn't we go there? <laughs> and so, you know, we might go, what in the heck? Uh, but I'm just saying, what in the heck is, that was voted number one, and they felt like that moved people to go there. They saw the greatest business growth they've ever seen in, in, their, in their whole industry, because, and they, they, they thought it was, well, I don't know, to do a, a commercial like this. It's like a little story. It captures you. So, I mean, quite frankly, I don't know what to do with all this, except I'm just like you going, what is going on? You know, you, look, you, you think about this stuff. But here's the deal. Social media, this phone, this Twitter, this Facebook, allows you to take these principles of image, feeling, picture, and do the same thing. People now, your kids, brand themselves like a product so that people will buy it, be moved towards it, get the likes, whatever that might be. You know, Facebook, and I, I know Facebook, you know, even though things like Snapchat, we're going to talk about this one because it's interesting what Snapchat is, uh, but later we always kind of return back to Facebook at, at some place in our lives. Um, this is, you know, called social media. It's supposed to somehow, this is the first big one, connect you and give you more friends. Um, the question is, does it make you really feel more connected? There's a huge link with, particularly among women, interestingly, with Facebook and depression. And uh, this is a huge link. These sites, they appear to be about um, relationships but they kind of masquerade, really, as a window into our own world. It's really, it's really functioning. You know, they think it's, it's about relationships and connection with others, but it's really a mirror into yourself, what's really going on inside of you, I think. I remember when I first got on Facebook, I was late, late into this thing. 
um, a friend signed me up, and I remember I was on a trip, and they did it. I was speaking actually in Sweden, and in Sweden I got signed up, came back, and I had, it was like I had more, welcome, more emails about welcoming me to Facebook that I jumped on than I did when my first child was born. I mean, it was it really it was amazing how, how grateful the, the, the industry was that I had become a part of this. And I remember going on for the first time and checking out. I remember going, ooh, I wonder what, you know, I wonder what Laura Winner, Weimer is doing. And she was somebody in high school, you know. And I felt like a voyeur. I felt like one of those weird creepers at the gas station who put a camera in the girl's bathroom or something, you know. It, it just, and I kind of went, whoa. I actually did not go to my high school reunion because I go, I don't need to now. Look, look. And I real, I, but I felt creepy, and then I realized, I don't know if you remember back the first time, that because it, 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 it's not voyeurism, what Facebook is, and so much of social media, is exhibitionism. People want you to go on and see this stuff. And I, I remember going, what does this mean? Uh, they want you to see this. You're crafting an identity. You're crafting, just like Madison Avenue, a feeling, an image, a picture of who you are. And our kids are wrapped up, and we are, we are, we are, well, we're, we're wrapped up in this. Some of us right now, it's hard enough to check our phones. Right now. Um, now, there's an ancient Greek myth about uh, Narcissus. Um, he was the... Uh, the beauty, the hunk, the Brad Pitt of the mythological world, <laughs> I think, or whatever, I don't know. Uh, all the maidens wanted him uh, to like them and wanted him to return their affection, uh, and he didn't. Uh, and so they were so hurt by his unrequited love that they went to the gods and asked the gods to curse him um, with the same feelings that they had of uh, sort of their unreturned love. And so the gods made this silver pond in which he would see his reflection. Of course, Narcissus would look, and he would see this beautiful water fairy. But the problem was, it was his own reflection, but the problem was that every time he reached out to grab for it, it would dis disappear. And it, as the story goes, uh, the issue with Narcissus was that he was so obsessed with the picture of himself in the silver mirror that he died of hunger. He couldn't eat. He became so obsessed. Now, here's, but psychologists tell us that the myth of Narcissus is not so much about excessive self-love. Don't be so narcissistic. As it is about being asleep or being numb to the reality of what a mirror can do. You're constantly looking and checking out yourself again and again and again with a selfie stick, with a with a thing, with spending hours getting the right thing to send on a picture, the right pose. I know 13-year-old girls that are spending hours just trying to get the hair right for the picture to put on, to get the likes for the whatever. What's wild is um, there's something called the NPI, the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. It's a test that's often given when you go to grad school. We had to take it when we were in seminary. It measures, basically it measures whether you're a sociopath or not. Um, 
the narcissistic personality inventory, they discovered uh, a rise in narcissism in people born after 1982. Research at um, Yale was looking at this, and they discovered that in 19, if you were born in 1982, but that when you were in the middle school and high school, you were there at the onslaught of the first social media events, right? There's some really monumental times in your development. Uh, it was called MySpace, by the way. <laughs> Anybody get on MySpace? Anybody still have a MySpace account? <laughs> you know, that, that, was the, that was the first that they began to realize this, this rise. In fact, a 2014 study found that 30% of 14 to 25-year-olds were classified as high on the narcissistic inventory. In fact, so high that back in the 50s, if we would have checked it out, you would go, uh, these kids need some maybe psychological help here. This is dangerous. But yet, as we're looking at it, we're going, they seem to be fine even though they seem to be way high on the narcissistic personality inventory. Maybe we're just good. Maybe we should just raise the bar and call it good. We're good. We're good. Oh, even though in the 1950s, we'd be shocked. Like, we need to get, like, Freud in here to figure something out because they're, they're, well, our kids are going to, you know, they're going to be killers or crazy. Um, and in college students today, we know this. We study this even at, at Whitworth University. Uh, they are nearly twice as narcissistic than college students before 1980 that were born in, in, in a study. And, and, and since 1982, there's been a 40% decline among young people in empathy, which, by the way, this personality inventory, uh, it, it looks at this, it's, it's in kind of versely related to narcissism, that um, empathy is this ability to actually relate to somebody else's feelings, which is the first step towards sociopath, you know, being a sociopath. We have no regard for, you know, we just killed the frog. We didn't even care. You know, you just, you know, you just move towards this sense. And, and people wonder, what is going, going on? What does this really mean? So uh, have you heard anything else? What else have you heard about any of this um, that's going on? Yeah. Say that again. I've heard about this several, and several other uh, like software engineers and others and people who are in the social media world. They don't let their kids do this stuff, but they're creating it so that they will dick everybody else's kids. Wow. One in all of Minnesota. Did you hear that? Yeah. Well... <clears throat> Yeah, we have to admit, right, this, we don't, this is a huge, huge, huge issue. Um, so let me share some, let me just move a little bit into, can I talk about Snapchat just for a minute? Because I'm just learning this. I, I've never, I've done it once just because my high school kids showed me how to do it. Uh, there are 70 million people in the U.S. that use Snapchat uh, last year. 80% uh, of the 70 million are under 35, and two-thirds of that 80%, uh, that's like 53% of Snapchat users, are under 25. It's the major form of communication, I don't know, with, the ki with kids today, high school kids in particular. The, the, uh, in fact, if you look at this um, next slide here, it shows 
Snapchat amongst uh, a favorite uh, age 16, 16-year-old, 39, 40% said uh, at Snapchat. And then next, Instagram is next, Twitter, Facebook way down, <laughs> Pinterest, I don't know. Um, now, eventually, they, as they get older, they'll move, they'll move back into Facebook. But uh, wh- what is Snapchat? And I always, always thought, first I thought it was, oh, that nudie picture thing where you could send something and your parents can find it because it would disappear. Uh, it still is this, it, it, but what it's using is picture, you take a picture or a video, and it's using picture, by the way, Madison Avenue Media, look what I'm talking about, the way, uh, you know, the way we get people to buy products, picture and image, and music and store, you know, they are using picture and image and video to communicate, and then it disappears. There are these three screens, as I understand it. <laughs> There's a snap where you take a picture or you take a video. There's all this chat where on the left you can actually decide who you want to send this to, which is different than Facebook where anybody can go on and just look. This one, you control who you then want to send it to. And then there's this third new screen called Watching Your Stories, which you can actually document chronologically the story at the birthday party by just taking pictures, putting it on there, and it'll go into this file, and somebody who's not there can watch, a, you know, may, it might last for, you can set the times, I think, like 24 hours to see the story of what actually unfolded at the party through all these pictures or little videos, which in a way is kind of cool. You, you can be there and not be there, sort of, right? Well, um, what makes Snapchat different? Um, well, here, here are a couple things. Uh, you want to hit this slide? Uh, accumulation versus in- instant expression. Um, now, uh, the CEO of Snapchat, Evan Spiegel, he's, he's the one that kind of has documented this idea of accumulation versus in- instant um, expression. Uh, in, in accumulation, identity is in everything that you've ever done or posted. So you look at onto Facebook or whatever, or Twitter, and you see all Instagram, you see all this big, you know, history of things that make the image you, and you can actually go in and delete things you don't like to keep improving this image of, of who you are, you, you, your profile, your posts, your pictures. They call it identity curation. You, you put all this stuff together and you form this identity around uh, this accumulation of things. You even delete content that doesn't improve your, your public image. Snapchat has pioneered what's called instant expression. And it's more like this idea, I am who I am right now. You know, content remains on profile, results in user creates and controls the content, but not who sees it. In instant expression, we find this. You know, I am who I am right now. Don't define me by all this stuff in my past because this is me right now, which in some way, hmm, it's, well, in some way, okay, it allows you not to, don't define me by all my mistakes. Don't just peg me in eighth grade like that loser boy who just, you know, was crazy. I'm different now. Um, It results in everything, I, I am the result of everything I've done but not the accumulation of that, and it, pro- it does promote a sort of authenticity. You know, this, this idea that somehow um, this is the real me in this moment. Um, and, and, and the reality of the past is that these stories don't last, so they disappear, so you can always, like, you know, start a new story the next, the next day. Um, 
Much, here's what uh, Farad Manju, who's a New York Times columnist and author, says. Much of what you see on Snapchat feels less like a performance than on other networks. People aren't fishing for likes and follows and reshares. For better or for worse, they're trying to be real. And the question is, you know, I don't know, you have that, um, oh, well, here's this. Yeah, there's the quote. Much of what you see on Snapchat feels less like a performance than other networks. People aren't fishing for likes and follows and reshares. For better or for worse, they're trying to be real. I think this is what's attracting your kids to this media. And the question is, is it good or is it bad? Um, there's something good about it. It's what we might call touch points. We know that in friendship, that all, like here, even here in this room, that we, I've been watching, you guys are so cool. I don't know what it is about Minnesotans. Maybe you're just faking me out because it's Midwest weirdness. And I really, if I got into it, I would discover here just like the rest of us. Uh, but there is this sort of loving uh, understanding you guys have with each other, like even buying me socks. And I, I got these cool Minnesota socks, you know, and stuff, you know. Who does this? Well, you Minnesota people. You, you family-friendly people. Maybe there's the family-not-friendly folks, but, you know. Uh, but all of these friendships have been built over a, a million little touch points, I would call them. And we know this between spouses or in a dating relationship. It's always a little, hey, hon. Hey, what's in little noise? Who you? you know. And it's so easy for us to look at our, like, I looked at some junior hires posting, you know, t t doing their tweets or little snapshots, like, hey, what's up? You know, dude, you know, the little, you know, their little, um, you know, LOL, you know, you, all these little things. You don't even know what, what is that? You know, and you go, that's so stupid. But yet we have stupid stuff where it's those little words. And one thing good about all this, those little touch points do let somebody, let somebody know you really care all the time. You're thinking of them all the time. Snapchat has really allowed these touch points to happen. And what, what it is, it, we find that it's vivid, it's frequent, and it's personal. Vivid, I mean, the reality of the vivid is it's, it, it Snapchat shows live because it's picture and, and movie, which is moving a generation. So when you see a picture, like a picture paints a thousand words. I think Brad had a song out back in the day. I don't know. I'm, I'm aging myself, aren't I? You, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Pete. Um, it's um, frequent. Facebook, Instagram, etc. They're not fast enough, <laughs> which is a little bit weird to think. Remember, you know, man, we still remember when I used to plug in and have that, you know, and your email's been sent, you know. Now we get pissed off. They go, chink. That's so slow, you know. Uh, and personal, you feel closer to real relationship because this picture is being taken at the moment. It's coming to you right now, and you know where that person is at. And now they have these, you can map out and see where everybody's at on a little thing, where your, face, you know, your friends are and Snapchat. And you feel closer to real relationship. But here's what it is. It still falls short. And this is the, the issue with social media. It promises you connection, but it always falls short. And that dopamine hit hits you again, and you go, oh. so you send another one. And you send another one. And you send another one. And kids aren't sleeping at night because at 2 in the morning, they're checking it out and sending another one. I hope you're making your kids take their phones and put them somewhere before they go down to the room at night to try to figure out a way to control this thing. We have school, high school, well, I mean, Rich, are you here, Rich? 
as a junior high principal, you have to deal with the reality of what's going on with kids. I have a high school principal friend of mine who says, it's unbelievable. Over the weekend, the fights and the issues that happen because of Snapchat and, 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 and little Instagram tweet, you know, texting stuff that goes on over the weekend with kids, and they come back, and it explodes at school. Just explodes. So um, now there's a new term. They call it um, image overload. Psychologists are using this. Where um, 20-somethings today, I, I really believe this at my college campus at Whitworth, there's this low-grade level of anxiety, and I would say fatigue, that's just functioning all the time because my students are exhausted in trying to monitor and create these photo streams of their life and the pressures to digitally document everything they do and to keep up with it all the time. It's just low-level fatigue that just runs constant. And it's why our kids are so depressed and so anxious all the time. It's part of the reason, this, this challenge. And these touch points, they trick us into thinking that they're enough, but they're not. There's something really, really important missing. Because physical space matters. I mean, this, this is what's great. God gave us bodies for a reason. Even when we think about Jesus, the incarnation, God took on a body. There is something important about presence. Are we doing okay? <laughs> I, um, what time is it? I don't even know. 11.13? Okay, check this out. Here's what it's doing. So what's this doing? Uh, next slide. Uh, digital media has trivialized location and our relationship with space. I mean, this is what's weird. You know this. Here's kids going to school, and we, you used to talk, and now it's just, it, it's, it's just very weird uh, to, to see this. Um, it, and so l let me show you this ad. Um, so uh, what is this ad saying? Watch this. So here's an advertisement for a big, if you know Cox, it's a big uh, multimedia conglomerate down in the south in particular. They own a lot of everything. But <laughs> um, this ad is about classic child stranger anxiety, right? But I think the narrator said something maybe he didn't mean to say. Did you get the one quote? Soon, I, I think I wrote it down here. Um, soon. People will be able to choose their own programming. They will not be restricted by something so trivial as location. Seriously. I mean, the incarnation. A body matters. I mean, there's a reason that John 1.14 is in the Bible. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's a reason 
that God took dirt and breathed into it and formed human bodies, not just ephemeral spirits, right? There is something about the human body that has the power to transform even if you don't say a word. It's like people who went to the hospital with you and probably hopefully didn't say too much, just maybe just sat there, right? That brings a healing power. It's that deal where you know you go on a date and you say, hey, how was it? If you remember back in the day or whatever, how was it? And you go, I don't know, we just didn't, I didn't have the, didn't vibe, I don't know. But it looked great on paper. But when you go, ah, no. And what, what you're speaking about is those, those underlying frequencies you can't describe because in the presence there's something, a vibe, something you can't describe that's happening. But in the digital world, that's gone. That is gone. It, get, it gets rid of all that. Um, and so what I'm finding is that um, my students who are college leaders in Young Life, I run a Young Life training program. I would say this over the last five years in particular. I am noticing, well, I'll go to a Young Life club and you know, there's a big, big room of kids. And I'll have these new college leaders like a sophomore in college. And I'll say something to the team like, hey, did you see those kids in the back wall that were just sitting back there, you know? And they'll go, oh, no. I'll go, you didn't? And literally, I'll go, are you blind? What do you mean you didn't? And what I'm discovering is they're losing their ability to notice those antennas, those, that social lubricant that we're so used to that allows us to see a room and get a feel for a room, to know what's going on with people. It's gone at some levels. I have to work with them to notice the reality of the world around them. So they don't pick that up because they've been so trained just to communicate here. In fact, they've been trained to look down, to be right here, that they, they can't look out to see the rest of what God's doing in a real-life situation. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm trying to put words to the reality where I'm seeing a, the, a less of ability in some of my college leaders to lead like this. Um. It's extended adolescence. Have you heard this phrase? Uh, 30 is the new 20. I hate that phrase, by the way. But, but it's delayed your, your growth because what's happening, the difference between what's called the projected self and the true self, this is nothing new, but if you're doing this on Facebook and taking all the selfies and projecting, uh, uh, branding yourself, it's harder. We know that growing up, maturity is when you're, I mean, every junior hire does this. You know, they, they have this projected self, oh, I'm going to be an NBA star, you know, and they're, or I see him every, uh, into the winter, late fall, every year, I, get, I leave my house about 7.45 to go to work, and I'll see junior hires stand at the bus stop. It's, you know, 20 degrees outside, and they're like in a tank top. You know, I'm cool, you know, they're projecting this image, like, uh, you know, it's what we know. And then we call maturity is when your, your true self in your heart and your gut lines up with this projected self and you begin to say, this is who I really am. I'm not an NBA player. I'm a musician. And we call that maturity. But you understand why it's harder and harder to find that. When all you've been doing your whole life is projecting a self, it's hard to get down to what God has really called you to do. So we're seeing an extended adolescence and trying to work out. So in college now, we have a, do a lot more work in helping kids get down to the essence of who they are deep inside. Because they've been spending their whole life on, on, in this external uh, world. Um, next one. Uh, the loss of social awareness, I talked about this. It trains you to look down. 
Um, and I think every major religion, <laughs> Christianity included, uh, says, uh, it talks about being in the moment. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. And what's that whole thing about? No, today's got enough stuff. Be in the moment. And, and it's teaching a generation not to be in the moment. Uh, next. It's increased bullying and hate. Um, on the way here, your weird roads out of the airport. Uh, I'm trying to get to where I'm supposed to go, and so I got my GPS on my phone. Yay, what do I do without that? And, uh, but you come off these little things like uh, West 34, West 94, and I come off these little things, and there's like two roads right away. You just go like this, and my, my Siri like, uh, take out, and then I had to choose, and I took the wrong one, you know? And I cut a guy off, kind of, and I'm in a panic going, oh, I don't know how far away this place is, and I'm in a panic, and this guy comes by me on the freeway, and just as he goes by, he just flips me off. You know? And welcome to Minnesota, you know. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? <laughs> he was from Wisconsin. <laughs> but we all know that, that, that reality of what, a, what we, you know, like, but if, you were, if I was with that same guy in a bank line and I, I, I you know, cut into line, I'm sure he wouldn't come up to me and just go, you know, <laughs> maybe he would. But I'm sure he would kind of go, excuse me, the, oh, we have a line back here. I go, oh, you know, in real life situations, we work this out. But we know in the, in the cage of the car, we can do, cr in the cage of our little computer screen, we do crazy stuff and just send it. It's why hatred and bullying is on the rise in, in, a, in a generation which we would think we would be breaking down the walls of bigotry and hatred and thank God for a president. You know? And so... Um, you know, I mean, th this whole thing is, is really, and there's a new term, and Pete, tell me when I need to stop here, because I'll stop when we need to. There's a new term out now called networked individualism. You might just write this little phrase down, because we're trying to freak out, figure out what this means for church. I mean, this is a big issue with church. I mean, we used to go to church because we say, wow, that youth pastor is awesome. He's, you, have you heard him speak? Wow, the worship team is incredible. I'm not going here because th this worship team, they got rich. The guy's he's amazing. You should hear how they sing. But if you think about it, there's no church that can keep up with the, with the Hillsong United thing that you get on your phone and just listen to that every time with the Australian accents that are more God language, you know, God accents. Um, you can get a million good sermons from Rabbi Jack, Zachariah to whoever, Stan, you can get, you know, right here. And so what we're discovering, even in, in ministry, is that location doesn't matter so much. Like, I used to go to youth group to be a part of something. But now, what we call with this networked individualism, peep kids, we find kids, they go to youth group or to young life, not to get to know everybody to be a part of something, but to build their own network. And go, you know, I got you two, and I'm putting you on my network. I might not go for a while, but you're on my network. <laughs> I got my thing here. Send some snaps to you, you know. And all of a sudden you realize the need to be together is not so important because I'm building my own little personal network. And, you know, before I became a Christian, I actually, this is a little weird. Like, you asked, did I have better community before I became a Christian or follower of Jesus or after? Well, in this moment, like this, I say, you know, there's something about being a, a Christian, a follower of Jesus that allows great community to happen. But I'll, I'll, I'll come back a little bit. 
before I decided to follow Jesus, I had great friendships. And the reason was this, I could hate people. I could say, I like you and you, and you suck. <laughs> and I, I just love people. When God says, love your enemies, that, 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 that when we don't, when we're building a, a network, we can just get the people we want. But church is supposed to be this place where we love the unlovely where we come together and love the other. I mean, Jesus' whole life was about loving the other. It's part of what got him killed, put, put on a cross. He called us to love those that the world says, no, you're out. And so this is why we're seeing this rise in hatred and bullying and racism. Finally, um, it's led to stress in a fractured life. Uh, you read this verse Psalm 86 is a part of our call to worship today, this morning. That, the verse is interesting. Here's what it says. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness and give, give me an undivided heart. We know that all of the multitasking that goes on in this generation, we have, the, as professors, the way students write, it just is terrible. It's really, yeah, and, we, and the most common thing we have right now is, uh, we always talk about this and we grade papers, is a, is a little parentheses around a whole paragraph with the word what and the question mark. Because, and what we know is, at that moment, they went to their iTunes, they went and did a little, little post, they went and did a little Snapchat. They, 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 you know, we know that they're leaving their stuff and they're multitasking. They have all this stuff going on as they're writing their papers. And the reason it's leading to a fractured life is it's something called switch time. You don't know it happens. But for your mind to go, your grandma can multitask as well as you can. We think, oh, they're so good at it. They're not good at it. <laughs> and this thing called switch time wears out the reserves because it takes a massive amount of time to go from your paper to doing a tweet and going back to your iTunes and then doing a Snapchat and going back to your paper. That it takes an amazing amount. They call it switch time in your brain, and it's why it's stressing our kids out. So it's led to a fractured life, and we know that things we practice on a regular basis are habits that shape the psyche and the soul. Uh, can I watch one more little video? Watch this little video. Wow. What we're trying to do is, you know, what this tablet is supposed to do is make everything more efficient. You can be with your kid. You can watch a football game. Kid can watch the cartoon. You can type your wife and do it all together, multitask, all this stuff together. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of sick when you think about it, right? 
What happened to just being with your kid? And here's the issue with efficiency. That's why we have such hatred in this world. Love is not efficient. Love's really inefficient. It's much easier to hit a person in the face if they slap you in the cheek than to turn the other one. It's way more efficient. Get it over, just punch them in the face. You know, love is not efficient. And so, you know, in fact, love is patient. You know, how do you define patience? It's hard to define patience. But here's my best understanding of, of patience, which is the very opposite of efficiency. <laughs> it's like patience is not wanting to be any place else. Isn't that a great definition of patience? And yet, the whole world of the multimedia complex and multitasking is forcing us to try to be all these places all at once and not be fully present with your son at the table for breakfast. And I think this wears on our spiritual souls. And I would say just, and I've got to be done here, but just say, we can continue this over lunch or whatever, just keep talking about this. How are you growing in your faith? Because my question is, what, what does spiritual formation look like? What does it look like to grow in Christ? Like, like if somebody would say to me, hey, it's New Year's. My goal is to lose 10 pounds. I go, hi, okay, how are you going to do it? Well, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to eat a gallon of ice cream every day. Well, I'd like to ask, you know, how's that going for you after a couple months, you know? It'd be the same way of saying, you know, I, I, I'll have students come to me and say, you know what, I, I, I wish my identity could be more formed in Christ. I wish I would define myself by how God sees me as beloved, chosen, and loved in the grace fields uh, love of, of the Holy Trinity. That's, that's how I want to define my life, to be more self-giving and feel the presence of God's love defining who I am. And the way I'm going to do it is spend a lot of time on Facebook. You want to ask, well, how's that going for you? So this does affect us and how we think about growing in Christ and being the person that God would want us to be. And, had I, and I, here's my deal. I know it feels like Kent's just blasted you know, all multimedia and all of the, the Internet. And I'm just saying, no, there's some really good things. Texting, there's some great things I can do to keep up. But we have to find a way to monitor this and control this in our lives and our families. And I guess the question I would leave you with is how are you doing with this? What's defining you? Are you branding yourself like a product? And the bigger question, what are you and your husband or your family doing to try to control this with, with, with your family and your household? Because we're not getting away from it. We just got to find a way to form it so that it doesn't steal the souls of our kids. I don't even know how to end this. Other than just probably time to pray. I'll just pray. Yeah. Uh, grab a hand. Because p- part of this deal is that we're, we're trying to figure out as, as, as families, you know, how to help each other through this whole thing. Young men with porn addictions and the availability of young women. It's, it's on the rise of young women. Women. Uh, the, the reality of just every waking moment you think about that phone. And I would say, if, if the first thing you do in the morning is turn your phone on, you got a problem. You got a problem. It's like an alcoholic. Lord, help us talk about this with each other. 
Help us support each other. Help us, Lord, when we find a tool like these new things that Comcast has and others where you can actually turn off all the, the internet into your house and all the social networking, boom, for time periods. We need this. And we talk about food fasting, like I'm, I'm, I'm you know, not eating for two days to pray. Uh, we need uh, no media fasts. That's what we need. No more food fast. It's media fasts. Help our kids to not lose themselves in uh, the airwaves of the internet, but to realize that real presence matters. Like this is what's so cool about the KCs over there hanging with the little ones. Their bodies are in that room, loving, hugging in the presence of. That's beautiful. We love you, and we're trying to figure this out in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I love you, Pete. <laughs> that is so stupid. 